Transportation Matters, the CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. Welcome everyone to our new episode of Transportation Matters. My name is Martin Daum and I'm the CEO of Daimler Trucks and Buses. So thank you all for being with us again. And in case you're tuning in for the first time, you may find it worthwhile to check out our episodes of season one. Now let's jump right into today's topic. Today, we want to talk about sustainability. No doubt, sustainability is a mega trend that has been in the news for a while now. But the question is, how can we make climate action really happen? How and how fast can we bring CO2 neutrality to a cost-sensitive industry like transportation? That's what I will discuss with Nigel Topping. Nigel is one of Europe's most prominent figures when it comes to climate action. He is working closely with the business and political community as an advisor. And he currently acts as high-level champion for climate action in preparing the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Great Britain. Nigel, welcome to our podcast. Great that you are with us today. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. When I look at your title, high-level champion for climate action, only the English can come up with such a title. I envy you for that. Well, that's actually, it's the United Nations. It's 190 countries came up with that title in Paris in 2015. It was a decision of the governments of the world to create this role. So every year, the country who's the president of the climate conference appoints a high-level climate action champion. So it's not, it's not an English or a British title. It's a global, global one. And what does it actually mean, the high-level... <laughs> champion, you know, what is that? Well, it was created in recognition of the fact that countries alone, national governments, cannot solve climate change, that we need businesses, we need investors, local governments like cities, states and regions, or Lender in Germany. And so the role is created to work with all those communities to accelerate action on climate change and, and to help them accelerate the agenda at the national level as well, national governments. I provoke you now a little bit. When you say a country alone can't do it, But now a high-level champion can do it. So you as a person can do something what a country can't do. Are you Superman or Batman or both? No, but, you know, I can, I can provoke you to be more ambitious as Daimler, right? <laughs> yeah, um, what you did <laughs> and what you do. And, and, you know, when Mercedes say Ambition 2039 or when you talk about your 2039 commitments for Daimler trucks in Europe, North America and Japan, that changes the politics, that influences politicians. So it's not, it's not, no one can do this on their own. I think that for me, the high level champion means we need to have 7 billion champions. Um, but businesses, when they make the kind of commitments that you make, change the politics. They make it easier for politicians to, to change the rules so that everybody has to accelerate their action on climate change. So in preparation of that next Climate conference, and I understand it's in Glasgow. Yes, because all the conferences go with with the locations where, yes. where it's been. Yes, yeah, we have the famous Paris, and I come back to Paris yes. in a second. So we we talk about Glasgow. Yeah, what can we expect at the breakthrough? What would you call as a success? If what what should people remember of Glasgow? Well, I think the first thing is to remind people that what Glasgow isn't. Um, it's not a renegotiation of Paris. Glasgow is the fifth anniversary of Paris. So Paris was when the world agreed a long-term target of well below two degrees, trying to get for 1.5 degrees, and a mechanism for getting there. So that's every country makes their plans, and every five years they have to submit more ambitious plans. So I think in Glasgow we can expect or hope or work towards two things. 
One is that by then, we have every country in the world, with some exceptions, um, America will be an exception because it's withdrawing from the agreement, but the majority of countries in the world have submitted more ambitious plans. So at Paris, the plans added up to around 3.2 degrees of warming, so they need to be radically improved. Europe's on track to improve it with its net zero 2050 plans, the UK too. So that's the first thing, is that, but that will happen before Glasgow. That's part of the mechanism. It's not negotiated in Glasgow. The second thing is that we get, if you like, new coalitions around the major sectors of the economy, like, like the one that you're in, like the transport sector, where we start to converge on ambition and pathways mm-hmm. towards decarbonizing sectors of the economy. And that, that's the bit that I'm working most on, is to work with industry and investors and cities, say, how quickly can we make the transition to decarbonize transport? And what will mayors have to do? What will investors have to do? What will the CEOs of vehicle manufacturers have to do? So those will be the two things, mm-hmm. a shift in the national level commitment, then at Glasgow, really focusing on these new coalitions of the ambitious. Mm. And we will come back to that. And I think that's for the listeners extremely uh, important when it comes to real and, and action, yeah. what, what we have and will do. But I want to come back to Paris because I have to confess something. When we talked about uh, one and a half years ago here in our company at Daimler about we commit, completely commit to the Paris Accord, which was easily said for me. Yes, I think Paris, I I know Paris was something good. The entire world agreed, so I'm for it as well. Then I said, wait a moment. Do do I really know what Paris is? And then I looked it up in Wikipedia. And honestly, when I read the Wikipedia article about Paris 2015, I didn't understand it at all. And it took me some time until I really realized what Paris, what was really signed in Paris. Could you repeat with your own words what you think in Paris was signed? Yeah. Very easy, so easy that everyone can understand it. So really it was two things. It was a commitment to a long-term goal, which is that we get to the zero carbon economy. We sometimes say net zero because we know that some bits of the economy will still emit emissions, so we'll have to have ways of drawing emissions out of the atmosphere, either, either nature-based solutions or technical solutions. So that's the first thing that everybody agrees, and that's based in the science. And the second thing was that every country committed their plan, what's called a nationally determined contribution, and they commit to improving that every five years. I think that perhaps the most important bit is that this is all based in science and acknowledging the science. Mm. And one other thing that happened in Paris was the countries asked the international scientific community, this international panel on climate change, which is a collection of eminent scientists working on climate change, to look at the science of 1.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we talk about zero carbon, but that depends when you get to zero, whether we're limiting warming to two degrees or 1.5 degrees. In late 2018, that report was published, which showed that the economic and the human damage at a two degree temperature rise is massively worse than at 1.5 degrees. So in the last 12 months, we've seen a real acceleration of ambition towards 1.5 degrees, which means basically getting to net zero emissions by 2050. Mm. And that is what what was for me the aha impact too. We have to stop the rise of the average temperature at 1.5 degrees. Yeah. Because for me, the the fallout would be far more disastrous, you know, as any cost we have, which is necessary to become carbon-free. Yes, and not just an environmental fallout, but an economic fallout. Even if you're just purely rational economic then the cost of acting to limit warming yeah. is much less than the cost of all the damage. That we're, and look, we're already seeing the damage, right? From Australia 
to California, to Mozambique, yeah. to Japan, all around the world. Yeah. This is not a problem that's... A, in my country now, we have floods. Yeah. The wettest February ever. So it's not a problem for someone else yeah. in 20 years. It's a problem for all of us now. And it will get worse, right? Because there's a momentum in the atmosphere already. The bad part is that countries where billions of people are living suddenly becomes uninhabitable. And then we have a movement of people around the world which can change the world forever. So in my opinion, this is really, really massive and no reason for joking. This is serious. Oh, yeah, and it's, and it's interesting you talk about um, you know, the risk of very high levels of climate refugees. Yeah. Perhaps the people with the most sophisticated understanding of risk are security forces who yeah. think about causes of war. So you, you speak to you know, military strategists, they have climate change as one of the biggest potential causes of conflict in the next 20 years. Yeah. And then for me, and that was the, the, the journey, uh, Daimler was on in the last 18 months, and I personally was on, was if we want to limit it at 1.5%, then by 2050, transportation, and I represent the commercial side of our business, not the individual transportation, which is passenger cars. I represent the commercial transportation, which is the movement of goods, which yeah. is essential for our way of living, you know, yeah. segregation of duties and, and specialization is the core of our life in the last 300 years, and it will continue to be. But to have that style of production, you need movement of goods in between. So it's essential, but we have to make it carbon-free yeah. by 2050. But to be by 2050 carbon-free, because our trucks last for about 10 years, yeah. we are only allowed to sell the last one in 2040. Yeah, That means between now and 2040, it's just 19 years. You know, I... I used to make the same speech and talk 20 years. Now it's just 19 years. So yeah. one is already gone. Yeah. And, and this is amazingly fast. And so we, we have to act. You said the journey you've been on, because you, know, you, yeah. you and I have been talking about this for a couple of years. Yeah. And, the, and the first times we talked about it, you weren't so clear. And we were, we were more arguing from different positions. Yeah. Right? What caused you to change your thinking around what you need to do? Exactly what we were talking about in the last five minutes. Yeah. The realization that if temperature goes higher than 1.5 degrees, we have massive change where the fallouts are so unbearable that we rather move today yeah. than, than, to, than to solve the problems in 2050. Right. But to be 2050 carbon neutral, we can't only sell by 2040 yeah. the last combustion engine. Which means R&D today, right? Which is 19 years from now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is... Uh, extremely short period of time yeah. for such a massive change. So we yeah. better start now and not wait another yeah. 20 years. And my sense is that is that you, you're really energized by this, right? For me, yeah. engineers exist to solve problems. So what effect has this commitment had on you and the team in terms of, you know, purpose and the joy of coming to work? Is it? It's a great question. You know, I think it surrounds the word change. Yeah. Change can be something you're afraid of. Yeah. And then you do everything that there is no change. Yeah. But the moment you feel or experience change as an opportunity, yeah. it, it's still the same change. Yeah. It's still the same facts, but it's a completely different attitude. Yeah. You know, suddenly it's an opportunity and not a threat. And I think it comes when, when you decide that you can play a part in that change. Rather than it happening to you, you, yeah. you, you can drive it. You can be part of it. Yeah, yeah there is this phrase be a victim or author of your destiny. Right, yeah, absolutely. Anytime you're author, it's much more fun 
than if someone else pushes yeah. you around as a pawn on a chessboard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you were the chess player, and I'm the pawn. I, I've never had that feeling, <laughs> but but we are rather now really working together yeah, in, into a better future. But but for me, it has several aspects. For for example, on the tracking side, yeah. uh, if you read our ambition clearly, we say we want to be carbon free, sell only carbon uh, neutral or carbon free for me zero emission yeah. trucks. And there are two disclaimers in. A, one disclaimer is in the triad. That means North America, Europe, Japan, and Australia or Chile or some affluent countries not in the triad and China. But there are countries where we are market leader like Turkey, like Saudi Arabia, like Kenya, like South Africa, where we have a massive representation sell every year, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine thousand trucks where these countries need our products and I can't see those countries moving in that speed than the others. So, so, so you're, you're, that was one of my one of the things I was interested in, that yeah. you, you, you didn't say globally, you said in the triad. So that's main, not because you don't think you can do it or don't want to do it, but you're, at the moment you don't think those countries will, yeah. will move. I, despite them signing the Paris Agreement, yeah. Yeah, we have inside that global agreement, there are still a couple of countries in where we allow them to increase their CO2 footprint over the next years. And trucks play a role in this increase because we see for a couple of those countries the largest and biggest growth rates of all markets. Yeah. So yes, there will be more pollution. More so so what, 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 what would it take for you to extend, extend the, that vision from the triad to the whole world? What, what signals would you need from countries? That... And this is my second, was my second disclaimer. Yes, you said that. As long as the customer wants it. The good thing about transportation for me is that it's, uh, we call it TCO driven yeah. business. TCO stands for total cost of ownership. Yeah. Nobody buys a truck because he wants to buy a truck because he has to. Yeah. Everyone buys a truck not for pleasure and fun, but for making money. Yeah. And they sell basically transportation on a cent per mile basis. Uh, and they get revenues on cent per miles and the difference multiplied with the miles driven is the profit yeah. of the company. Now, if diesel engine provides an absolutely highest possible efficiency, and if I can't make money with an electric or uh, a hydrogen uh, powered truck, then I can't afford to buy it. Yeah. This is different than in the private world. In the private world, I can do things which are financially not not the most efficient. But if I if I run a thousand trucks, I can't have that luxury. So we need an environment that supports that, that people can make money with an electric vehicle. Yeah, but of course, if you look at one of the biggest forces driving change now, which is air pollution, which kills 7 million people a year, and the fact that, say, six of the worst polluted cities in the world are in India, yeah. at some point, and we see it in, in the UK already, you end up with a, with an infinite cost of ownership because the mayors start banning combustion engines from city centers. Yeah. So I, I guess it, so. there's a cost of ownership crossover point driven by technology, but there's also one driven by by policy. Right? So I wonder how you think about those two different forces yeah. in your, shaping your markets. This, uh, the, the inner city pollution, which is, a, which is a true fact, and you are absolutely right, the most polluted cities are more in the poorer countries. If I look at Cairo, uh, or Delhi, uh, you're absolutely right. But I call that microclimate. Yeah, you can change the microclimate that you have in the in the in the core of a city. A ban for all combustion engines. That's yeah. easy. Yeah. yeah, that's by the way 
uh, already today possible. We have the e-canter from Fuso, which is a which is a delivery vehicle for inner cities. We have the e-sprinter at Daimler. Uh, yeah, all and, this bu is, and, and buses and see. buses and city buses and so on. Uh, clearly, the e-citaro. It's all vehicles for the inner city work. But they don't save the world. They save the climate inside the city, which is called microclimate, and the, the climate change with the Paris Accord and the climate conference in Glasgow. That's for me the global climate. Right. Okay. But this is for me when you look at the total consumption of fuel, it's a long distance which makes a difference. Right. It's not the transportation inside the city. So, so technologically, we've already solved it in cities. That is, in my opinion, it's not it's not completely solved, but we are in a good way. I'm not worried about that. Yeah, any city in the world can ban uh, combustion vehicles and with a two, three-year preparation time, we can respond to that. Right. But, but back to you, Nigel, because I would like to, to hear more from you. What I am uh, more concerned at the moment is what's called peak oil, you know, the, the, the most consumption of oil in the world, and we haven't reached peak oil yet. You know, the year after year after year, The consumption of oil and climbing mean more CO2 is released and not less, despite all efforts around the globe. What's here your position on that? Well, we, we need peak emissions this year. I mean, now, maybe with coronavirus, we've definitely reached peak emissions, but that's not a solution we'd want. You know, the big driver of oil is transport, right? And we're, gonna, we're not going to reduce the amount of kilometers that we're driving either passengers or goods. So that's why the decarbonization of vehicle fleets is so important. My sense is that, um, you know, with your work on putting a 2039 date, my, my sense is that we'll, this will just keep accelerating as the politics changes. You know, you see millions of kids on the street who are frightened for their futures because they're seeing floods and wildfires all the time. They're, 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 some of them are voting, they'll all be voting soon. That's changing the politics. They're also the children of CEOs of, of component companies and car companies and, and politicians, right? So they're also asking difficult questions of their parents. So my sense is that, like all industrial transition, this will happen in an S-curve. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes, it, it takes a very long time to happen. Then as the technology costs come down, they get more adopted, which drives the cost down. So we have a positive feedback loop. And then eventually the technology goes vertical. My sense is that we will see that in the 20s on the car side. And actually, given what you've just said about the solutions being available in the next 10 years, maybe that's already happening on the bus side. Mm -hmm. you, know, and, you know, we see a, a very quick switch Partly driven by climate change, partly driven by, by by urban pollution, as we discussed. So yeah, I think we'll see. My, my sense is that we'll see peak oil, um, peak demand oil, either now or in the next few years, driven by this rapid transition. And the oil companies aren't ready for it. By by and large, they're still investing in upstream exploration. That's kind of a bad bet in a declining market to be investing in growth. Although you start to see the rhetoric changing, so BP just announced their own net zero 2050 target, which is which is very interesting, right? Which will mean a massive switch away from exploring in oil to the kind of infrastructure that you're talking about, to hydrogen, um, to electricity, to vehicle charging. You know, of course, the, a lot of the oil companies have big infrastructure in terms of petrol stations, which can be converted to um, to charging stations and hydrogen. So. I think we're on the on the cusp of the S curve really taking off. I think I saw last week the electric vehicle sales, passenger vehicle sales in Germany have gone from about two and a half percent to seven percent in one year. So that's the kind of exponential growth that as long as the investment from the manufacturers and the infrastructure and the fiscal incentives keep aligning, I think we'll see that go vertical quite soon. But now comes in something I would expect from politics, and that's what I would expect from you. 
as a high-level champion for climate actions. Yeah. Uh, when we, we say, I said there are three reasons we have to work on. The one is uh, our technology solutions. Yeah. Check. Secondly is infrastructure uh, where we need movement. But th- and this is charging stations and yeah. the hydrogen infrastructure. But third, and this is for me it's similar important, is we have this will be more expensive, you know, because those investments needs to have a return. But that means on the other side, carbon burning needs to become more expensive. Yeah. When we had in the past, we were battling the biggest pollutant was nitrogen oxide. Yeah. When we moved from all those Euro 4, Euro 5, Euro 6, in transportation, it was always a disadvantage for a customer running Euro 6 compared with Euro 5. The politicians had a great system, and that is was a NOx-based toll system, that whoever has a less polluting engine got a reduction in the toll. Yeah. And suddenly it became, as more you drove, as more advantageous it became to have the latest technology yeah. in your truck. Huge push. Yeah. We have to change that completely from a NOx-based to a CO2-based yeah. toll system. Yeah. That there is a reward for becoming CO2-free while driving or ultimately a penalty yeah. for driving uh, still emitting CO2. And that means that the one who drives the most will change the first. Yeah. And the one who rarely drives something, you know, a firefighting engine, which is very difficult to, to move to a battery or H2, you can still do carbon because they drive less than a thousand kilometers yeah. a year. Yeah. No problem for the world's climate. Yeah. yeah. And with such a system, and we need that. And I expect it from you and such a climate conference that you put a sensible tra- price tag on those things. So, of course, I agree that, I mean, this is the, the, the basic economics of environmental damage that when we have externalities, yeah. as, as the economists call them, that no one pays for, the producers don't pay for, then society pays for them. That's what, that's what we see. We are now paying for all the externalities of historical carbon emissions that were not factored into yeah. our economy. Now they're being factored in in terms of floods and fires and yeah. damage. But one thing to be clear, that won't be negotiated in Glasgow. It won't. No. So it's important to understand what Glasgow is and what Glasgow isn't. So um, in Paris, the basic agreement was negotiated and there were some rules that had to be tightened up. And so the last of those will be negotiated in Glasgow. And that does include some rules around international carbon trading, trading, which will have an effect on the ability of governments to put effective prices on carbon and to make those um, effective by having a, a linked global market. But the actual negotiation of a price on carbon won't happen in Glasgow. So it's important people understand that because if that's your measure of success in Glasgow, then you've already failed, right? That will happen much more at a national and a regional level as it does in, in Europe. And then linkage between markets as we already have some linkage between international markets. And also I think it's worth saying that there are many different ways of putting a price on carbon. You actually mentioned several. You can, you can put a price on directly. Mm. Or you can put an indirect price on by having a, a, an efficiency standard. So on the passenger vehicle side here, that's what's very much what's happening in Europe right now is right is a, is a fleet efficiency standard, which is an effective price on carbon. It doesn't actually name a price per ton, but it drives, it puts a cost to emitting. Um, and then of course, there's, there's bands, which are effective infinite price on carbon, as we're starting to see in city centres. So I think it's important people understand Glasgow will not negotiate a price on carbon. So if that's what you want, then you'll be disappointed. 
I think the really important thing for me is that you as the CEO of the biggest truck company in the world are saying to politicians, and I would encourage you to use your voice very loudly, we can get to zero. We're already committed to it in some markets and we can do it everywhere if the policies drive in that direction and work with us so that our ability and our ambition are matched by policy ability and policy ambition and then we can get there faster. That for me is a really important message because most policymakers don't expect to hear that from industrialists that you want to make the transition go faster because you realize we have to. Most politicians expect industrialists to complain and slow down the transition because that's been their experience normally. So I think we're talking about a very different politics or industrial politics of, of transport and of energy where you as a CEO say, no, 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 we can go faster, but you have to play your part as a policymaker to put a price on carbon or to change the standards, mm. whichever way suits the particular market. But that's what we do, yeah? We, we commit to a technical solution, but will be more expensive. We ask and encourage for an infrastructure, but we are fully aware that this costs whoever supplies that infrastructure billions. is expensive. So we expect on the other side that people using those products and using those infrastructure does not get penalized compared with people driving diesel. Yeah. yeah? And that's... Uh, and, and we started the whole discussion where we got you know, really excited about it and I really loved it. And I think our listeners uh, loved it, you know, the, the energy and the engagement in the room. We started with the question, what would it take then for countries like Kenya or South Africa yes. or Colombia, uh, Malaysia, take all those uh, countries, what would it for them take? And I would say with uh, giving the economic level of those countries, it's even more difficult for them. For that change. Yeah? So it needs to be ultimately a global movement. Yeah? Therefore, I see it, at the, and therefore we have that disclaimer in the try at North America, Japan, Europe, Australia, Chile, yeah? some rich countries, affluent countries. But it's interesting because we have some countries now who've said that they will have transition away from combustion engines by 2025, Norway by 2030, by 2035 now, the oh, UK. Said, Norway is my, my love baby. <laughs> I mean, transition away from combustion engines, but still starting drilling in the North Sea, a very deep, very deep in the North Sea, a new oil field, but making it more sustainable than any other drill in the world. I mean, this is hypocrisy uh, exponential. Yes, and, they, and they're being called out for it. And I think that, 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 you know, we're starting to see now a lot of pressure on oil companies and banks, actually. I mean, very interestingly, recently, there's been a growing move from banks to say they will not um, fund Uh, infrastructure investment for oil in the Arctic, in tar sands, of course, in coal. So we're starting to see the finance sector. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you're seeing that with the, with the finance sector putting pressure on you to accelerate. But I think, you know, it's, for me, it's all feedback loops. It's the finance sector sometimes going faster, sometimes industry, sometimes policy. It varies by market. One thing I've been surprised is that, and this is where I'm interested, I think you're ahead of the game with your commitment to 2039 in the triad. It's now quite common to have a country or a, or a company or a region to say they'll get to zero on passenger. Why has no country yet said net zero trucking by 2039 like you have? And how much would it help you if 10, 20, 30, 50 countries said, okay, we follow and we will make a, a law now or a commitment now to 2039 for transport? I mean, that would help enormously. I tell you that my biggest fear at the moment is that the regulations are not strict enough. Yeah. Yeah, because if, uh, for example, we have the discussion these days whether 
uh, we should go with a natural gas engine, yeah. which could save, but it's a, an enormous investment, 15 to 20% of CO2, but not more. That would still be 80% yeah. of today's level. Yeah. And that does not solve it. So we declined it as Daimler. I, we see the benefits. We could do it. We have prototypes in our workshops. But then you lock that in. But, but we lock that in and, and, and I don't invest billions in a technology that still emits 80% and does not help me at all. But this, I just wanted, but this, you just said our biggest fear is that regulators are not strict enough. Yeah. That's not what, that's not what people expect to hear from an industrialist. And that's probably not what you've been saying for most of your career, right? Most of your career, I guess you've been saying our biggest fear is that regulators are too strict. So, yeah, because you've always wanted a target which you can reach which, uh, with, with an evolutionary improvement of your yeah. current technology. And we do it great. You know, we, we did over the last 30 years about 1.5% fuel efficiency increase year yeah, over year. year over year. Multiply that. That means today a truck emits 45% less CO2 yeah. than it did uh, 30 years ago. But this is always incrementally. And if we continue incrementally, we never reach carbon neutrality. Yeah, so, so for me, the, one of the things I would, I'm, I'm working on is can we create fora where we get transport ministers from multiple countries and CEOs like you and have that? Because I don't think most transport ministers are getting the message that industry wants them to regulate more strictly to accelerate the transition. That If we can help transport ministers hear that message, that will be one of the most significant things contributing to success in Glasgow. But I have to protect my customers. That means whoever then follows that lead is not, can't get bankrupt compared yeah. with someone who uses then a 10-year-old truck with a diesel engine. Right, so the regulations yeah? need to be strict you, you, and you, smart. It, it needs to be, and we sometimes, I coin that phrase, ultimately Adam Smith has to replace Greta Thunberg. Yeah. And I say that sentence with full respect of Greta Thunberg yeah. because she brings an emotion into the whole thing and a, and, and a personal involvement, which in my opinion is necessary for each movement to change. But what we need similar in that whole thing is the rationale to it, you know, that, that you can still continue and make a living because drivers need to get their wages, transportation companies and owners need to get the rates for, their, for the lease of their trucks. Yeah. And trucking companies needs the revenues from selling trucks sure. to invest in investments and so on. And politicians need the taxes out of it uh, to then sure. uh, uh, help the environment and, and make conferences like Glasgow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so here we, we, we have to have that point of view. How can everyone work together that we can have a living, right. but a living which a complete change in it? Yeah, yeah. I totally agree on that. So in Glasgow, and I'd invite you to join us, we will be bringing together transport ministers and CEOs to have those kind of conversations to see okay. if we can get move towards agreement on what each person. So a transport minister has a certain role, a CEO has a different role, a mayor of a city has a different role. And if, if we all move together, we can move much faster. Yeah. And we have to move fast because time is flying so fast by. Yeah. And in all that change in product, in infrastructure, in learning, in improving, in, in, in getting new habits, you know, because we can't drive with one, you know, uh, uh, 800 kilometers anymore in, in, in one set. Yeah. Uh, that all things need time for the adjustments. Yeah. And eight and time is running out pretty fast. Nigel, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you. Thank you so much for your encouragement. Looking forward to talk and see you in the future again and looking forward to our listeners uh, for the next podcast. It's really amazing. 
and exciting Great. to talk about. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for your leadership, and look forward to continuing the conversation and uh, and to seeing you in Glasgow. Okay, thank you. Great, thanks for thank the invitation. You. All right, I think we have reached our destination for today. It's been a long and insightful trip. Nigel, thank you very much for taking us on that journey. And thanks to everyone out there for coming along. I hope you all took some inspiration from it. I certainly did. Please join us again for our next episode on Transportation Matters, because transportation truly matters for all of us. Until then, drive safe and stay healthy. That was Transportation Matters, the CEO podcast of Daimler Trucks and Buses. If you enjoyed what you've heard, share this episode and subscribe to Transportation Matters on your preferred podcast platform. You can do this by tapping the follow or subscribe button right next to the podcast title. Our next episode will be available on the first Wednesday of next month. Meanwhile, please check out another Daimler podcast, Headlights. It provides insights and unique stories from Daimler employees. 